I'm always happy to uh, give Corey a break, but especially in this season. Uh, many of you may not understand the stresses that come with holidays like Easter and Christmas for pastors, but it can be pretty tough under the best of circumstances. But uh, the two weeks before Easter, uh, Corey and David were both here all day, every day, uh, working to help get this place ready. So it's really been doubly tough. And so uh, let, let's show a little bit of appreciation for both of them. Well, I'm happy to pick up on chapter 2 of Esther today, and I'll warn you ahead of time and apologize that it's going to be a little bit longer than normal, so uh, buckle up. Uh, <laughs> let's pray together briefly, and then we'll begin. Uh, Lord, we've come from all kinds of places this morning with all kinds of needs, and, but we have one in common, and that is we want to hear a word from you. And so uh, I pray that the things I say will be true and that they will point to you. In Christ's name, amen. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only person that God does not check in with every morning. Uh, I, he doesn't come to me with a list of things that are going to happen today and what I'm supposed to be doing to fit in with that plan and very clear and very explicit and no ambiguity about anything. And don't get me wrong, there are times when I've been very clear about what God's about and what I need to do, but I have to tell you, that's not the norm. Usually, I seem to live in a fog of uh, spiritual uncertainty and self-doubt. God is barely visible most of the time, it seems, and I'm always second-guessing the things that I do. And too often, when it all is said and done, I look back and realize that the choice I made was a bad one. Now, if that's your experience, then Esther's story is for you. Uh, but if you've got it all together and God checks in you, with you all the time, you can probably find something else to do for the next little while that'll be helpful for you. Uh, ch chapter 2 that we're looking at today uh, has four main movements in it that we'll take a look at. The first of these is Xerxes' regret, not his repentance. That's in verses 1 through 4. And then Mordecai and Esther are introduced in verses 5 through 7. And then there's a beauty pageant in verses 8 through 18, which is the real heart of the story for this morning. And then there's a strange postlude at the end about traitors being exposed in verses 19 through 23. So let's jump in at verse 1 of chapter 2. <clears throat> Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa and let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young, women, or young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. And now you know why Corey asked me to do this today. After a while, Xerxes cooled down and sobered up. And then he remembered 
Vashti. Now for Xerxes to remember the consequences of his drunken foolishness gives us momentary reason for hope that Xerxes will repent of his foolishness and seek reconciliation with Vashti. But that's not what happens. You see, for Xerxes, regret does not lead to repentance. The yes-men around Xerxes who were in place to stroke his ego suggested that he replace Vashti, not repent or reconcile. And they appealed to his ego by proposing an imperial beauty contest that would go across the entire empire and allow Xerxes to meet the most beautiful women in his empire and from them to select the most suitable replacement for Vashti. Xerxes loved the idea, and he quickly forgot Vashti, and he launched The Bachelor 2,500 years before reality TV thought of it. (laughs) And the cast for this show was absolutely massive, and it ran for four seasons. We're beginning to see how fully debased Xerxes is. His grandfather, Cyrus the Great, had built the Persian Empire. It was the largest the world had seen at that point, stretching from India to the Mediterranean Sea, and he was a good and just ruler, even for a pagan. Xerxes inherited that great empire, but he was very different from his grandfather. He was spoiled and entitled. He was vengeful, and he made rash decisions. He was self-centered, and he loved pompous displays. He squandered imperial wealth on parties and banquets, some we've already seen. There are 20 banquets in this little book. And all those around him learned how to use all his failings to their advantage and to stroke his ego at every opportunity. Repentance and reconciliation is nearly impossible for those who have spent a lifetime in self-indulgence. For them, regret is best erased and guilt avoided by distraction and moving on. And nothing distracts better than more self-indulgence. Now, that's not the point of this story, but it's the truth we need to keep in mind. Regret is not the same as repentance. You can be sorry and not repent one bit. And so the curtain falls on this despot for now, and it opens on a small Jewish family, two cousins, in verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon among those taken in captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Now, with the introduction of these new characters, the story begins to sound a little bit like Daniel. This story of 
Excess and ridiculous detail includes Jews living in exile with a mix of Hebrew and Persian names. They're strangers in a strange land ruled by a king with no allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the style of story is so similar to Daniel with its extravagant descriptions of the king and the court. But as you look deeper into that comparison, there are some shocking differences from, the Daniels, from Daniel's tale that raise a lot of troubling questions for us. And most of them are not answered, even by the time you get to the end of the story. And like Corey said last week, that's part of it, the hiddenness of what God is doing here. Esther and Mordecai's great-grandfather, great-grandfather, Kish, was among the Jewish leaders that had been taken out of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. But that was nearly a hundred years ago. And the executive order of Cyrus the Great almost 60 years ago had ended the exile and allowed the Jews and others to go back to their homelands. So why were they still here? The only knowledge of Jerusalem that Mordecai and Esther would have had would have been what their grandparents told them. And they were not even in Babylon anymore. They were in Susa, another 230 miles east. They're even farther from Jerusalem than the original exile to Babylon. And they're not alone. There's a sizable Jewish population here. Ezra, later would be in royal service to Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes. And Ezra was still in Babylon. They could return to Jerusalem at any time. They could have 60 years ago. But Mordecai and Esther and other Jews have been born in this foreign land. And they continue to live there. Why did they stay? It might be as simple as Susa had become home. It was familiar. Their friends and families were there. Their jobs were there. Why pack up and move a thousand miles to a long-forgotten place that was now occupied by others? Or maybe they had prospered in Susa. Many were in government service and, or had started successful businesses. Why give up all that to move back to some backwater place that was still devastated from the Babylonian invasion a hundred years ago? Or maybe they had taken to heart the instructions of the prophet Jeremiah who told them to build houses and settle down and to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. They were discovering that they could be God's people without Jerusalem and without the temple, and without their own king. They didn't choose to be exiled in the first place, but they chose to stay there. And the comparison to Daniel raises an even more troubling question, as Corey introduced last week. Where is their faith? Daniel is the hero for standing up to the paganism of Babylon. We all learned that in Sunday school years and years ago. He followed the dietary laws. He faithfully prayed. He shunned any form of idolatry. He was bold and unapologetic in his faith. 
while Mordecai and Esther were Jews, meaning they were from the land of Judah, there are no direct expressions of faith in this story. In fact, Mordecai had told Esther to keep it a secret. There's no hint either way about keeping dietary or other laws. There are no prayers, no visions, no dreams, not a single reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, like Corey said last week, this is part of the writer's intentional strategy to keep God in the shadows because that's part of what this story is about. The, rem the readers remain uncertain about Mordecai and Esther. Have they abandoned the faith? Are they just trying to get by? Or is there more going on than meets the eye here? The, the ambiguity and the uncertainty about them make them questionable heroes to us. We're not sure what to expect from them or where the story is headed. But the plot continues now and the drama increases as the lives of Xerxes and Mordecai and Esther are about to clash. Picking up at verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. He ple she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food, and he assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other women, any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, another one. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed the holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Those of us old enough to know understand what's going on here. This is state-sponsored abduction and abuse. 
Don't try to sanctify it as some kind of Cinderella fairy tale. The awful, indulgent, self-centeredness of Xerxes that we saw in chapter 1 is on full display here. Now, the, the, the required 12 months of beauty treatments may be an exaggeration to make a point, but the point is made. No woman left to her own devices is good enough for this king of kings. Like prized livestock, they must be carefully groomed to dazzle and trained to please. How many young women were rounded up and compelled to participate in this shameful contest? We don't know. But we do know that it was four years between the banishment of Vashti and Esther's turn coming around. And we do know that there were 127 provinces, all of which were required to send candidates to Xerxes. You run some math there and get some idea of what's going on. We can agree that Xerxes is absolutely appalling. But what about Mordecai? Hard question. Did he pimp out his cousin for his own gain? Did he just surrender in futility? Was there a vision of some greater plan? And why did Esther participate? There's no evidence of reluctance or resistance? Did she resign herself to her fate, or did she make a bad choice in order to survive? Or did she see it as an opportunity to seize power and position? In any case, this is nothing any of us would want for our daughters. Mordecai and Esther hardly seem good role models at this point. Still, there are two things in the story right here that deepen our uncertainty and our wonder about what's going on. First is the report that Mordecai hung out by the harem daily to keep, up, keep track of Esther. Now, Mordecai was a government official, so being in the palace compound would not be unusual, but creeping around the harem was dangerous business. And I think it's a deliberate hint at Mordecai's care and concern for Esther. Second is the description of Esther's behavior and how people responded to her. Unlike some of the other women, Esther did not take advantage of the opportunity to enrich herself with clothes and jewelry and perfumes in return for her time with Xerxes. There's also an interesting progression in how people responded to Esther, which is not evident in any of our English translations. Haggai was in charge of the harem and this expansion in all its residents. And the story tells us in verse 9 that Esther found favor with Haggai and was treated generously and kindly. Now, the Hebrew word translated favor here is chesed. It means loving kindness. And it's often used as descriptive of God. Haggai had to deal with all of Xerxes kept women. But something about Esther was different. I think Haggai saw an unusual lack of pretense and competitiveness in her. And that attracted a godly response from Haggai. 
And then in verse 15, we're told that Esther won the favor of everyone. And in this circumstance, everyone means the other women and servants in the harem. But it's not the same word in, in verse 9, even though it's translated the same. The word here is hen. That means charm or grace. And something about Esther charmed others and brought out grace. And lastly, in verse 17, we come to Xerxes himself, and we find that Esther won favor and approval of Xerxes more than any other women. And translation really does not serve us well here because both of the previous words are now linked together here, both chesed and hen. Xerxes saw something in Esther that both Haggai and the other harem women had seen. Esther was very different from the other women that Xerxes had. Unfortunately, it did not make him a better man. But we are left with the knowledge that there was some characteristic of Esther that provoked a godly response of loving kindness and grace. She brought out the best in others. Now, what that may mean for the rest of the story, we don't know yet. We will learn that Esther has some other positive attributes. But for now, we're left in the tension created by Esther's apparent absence of faith, morally questionable choices, and yet favorable, even godly responses from others. Now, we leave this deep thought for something more mundane, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot. And he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now this seems irrelevant to anything that's happened before, but this short factual report will come back to us as a turning point in the story later on. While this particular plot would fail, it is interesting to note that Xerxes was assassinated by the commander of the royal bodyguard about 10 years later. But back to the story. When we're told that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, th this is not a physical location. This is a way of saying that Mordecai held an office of service to the king, just like Daniel. We're not told what it was, but it did mean that he could move about freely in the royal compound and that he would regularly brush shoulders with other officials and military leaders. And as a result of that, maybe at the water fountain or during lunch, he heard of the plot against Xerxes. And the story takes a twist there. Instead of reporting it directly to Xerxes, Mordecai got word to Esther which would have been dangerous too. And let her tell Xerxes. 
Xerxes' response was entirely predictable and reflected his vengeful character. But why did Mordecai report the plot? Xerxes was a wicked king and had taken his cousin. Just letting the plot go through seemed the perfect way for Xerxes to get his just desserts and for Mordecai to keep his hands clean. Did Mordecai hope to advance his own standing with Xerxes by reporting the plot, or, or was he motivated by some sense of duty, or did he fear someone worse than Xerxes? Again, we don't know. And, and why did he tell Esther so she could tell Xerxes? Did he fear that others were involved in telling superiors might only expose him to danger? Mordecai probably had access to the king. He could have reported to Xerxes directly. Did he intentionally use Esther in order to enhance her relationship to Xerxes? Or again, was something else going on? The plot of the story continues to thicken as the questions pile up. We remain ambivalent about both Mordecai and Esther at this point. They are not like Daniel. Their choices and their actions trouble us, but there's something different about Esther. We're still puzzled about the silence and absence of God, but thankfully the story is not ended. We don't want to jump too quickly to the end of the story, but we still have to ask ourselves this morning, are there lessons from this part of the story today that we can take with us? Well, we can't draw a straight line from a story 2,500 years ago to our place and our time for at least three reasons. First, we have the Christ experience. While the triune God is around in all times and all places, we have the advantage of knowing part of the story that they did not know. And we have the responsibility of interpreting everything in light of what Christ taught and in light of his crucifixion and resurrection. Death also means we've got to be gentle in judging Esther and Mordecai. Second, we do not live in exile. We were all born into this place. We have no firsthand experience of any other. But because of our adoption as sons and daughters of God through Christ, we do have a sense of another place. However, that other place is in the future. It's not in the past. And the only way to get there is to go through the present. We are in this world, but not of it, we're told in the Gospel of John. The, the disconnect that we experience with this world shares some of these same experiences of exile, but it's not exactly the same. I don't want to minimize those feelings. It's been growing for the last 50 years accelerating year by year. The two years of COVID that we've come through have brought a decade of change, it seems like. It's affected our entire world, our economy, our politics, our education system, our relationships, and our churches. Still, there is no place or time for us to go back to. It doesn't work like that. But we're not just stranded in this world awaiting transportation. We've been sent to this place and this time just as Christ was sent into the world. 
Leaving is not our option. This, here and now, is our mission post. The instructions that Jeremiah gave the exiles to settle in, to build houses, raise families, and to work for peace and prosperity of the city have been elevated, for we are now ambassadors of Christ in this place. Third reason, we live in a democracy. And while this is not true of every place in the world at this time, it's true of us. And despite all its failings, there's no comparison to the autocratic rule of absolute tyrants like Xerxes. Living in a democracy gives us options and privileges and responsibilities that Mordecai and Esther could not imagine. So the theme of Esther's story is God's people living in a strange place when God seems silent or absent. They were discovering that they could be God's faithful people without Jerusalem, without the temple, and without their own king. The exile also brought dramatic changes to the Jewish faith. The, the synagogue system emerged as the gathering place for the people of God, essentially, eventually, replacing the temple. The synagogue was a place for the community to pray and to study God's word, taking the place of the sacrifices at the temple. And careful observance of God's word made personal piety a defining characteristic of faithfulness. For the last 50 years, changes in the American church have tracked alongside our cultural changes. Most of the change has been slow and steady, but the last 10 have been at breakneck speed, at least it seems to me and other people I know. We're faced with the same challenge of Esther and Mordecai. To be God's faithful people without Jerusalem, without the temple, and without our king. But even more than that, we have to embrace the mission assignment from God to be Christ in this place and this time. And like Esther, we can do this in a charming way that provokes kindness and grace in others. And that's the urgent assignment for us today. But it's complicated by this feeling of absence of God. No, God's not really absent any more than God was absent for Esther and Mordecai, but the clamor of competing voices around us makes it seem so. We long for an absolutely clear, indisputable word that we can affirm as God's word. And we want to see an act someplace where we can say, there, there's God, right over there. And those longings are understandable, but they may actually work against faith. We've been told to walk by faith, not by sight. And that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Still, we want some certainty. That's part of our human nature. And the sad thing is, the scary thing is, it can turn into a kind of self-righteousness if we're not careful. We may intend for our life to be one of faithfulness, but the reality is that our uncertain path includes indecision, 
missteps, detours, and even some pretty glaring mistakes. But I don't want to leave you with a half the story of Esther today, even though we can't skip to the end. We need hope and confidence today. Like Mordecai and Esther, you may not see God clearly, but God is there. God is there. You may be uncertain about decisions or even make some questionable choices, but we're promised that God is in all things, all things, in the mess, in the mistakes. God is in all things, working to bring about a good ending to the story. You don't have to be perfect in your understanding of God's will or perfect in your behavior. That's what grace is all about. At the end of the story, it's God's crazy, relentless goodness that counts, not ours. Let's pray while our musicians come. Lord, we are a people of uncertainty, living in uncertain times. But we long to be your faithful people. We long to hear from you. Forgive us for our unbelief. And help us to claim the confidence, the only confidence that happens, that can be, and that is in you and your goodness shown to us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.